Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Oliver Cousins of MAP, apparel and cycling gear to elevate your ride. Listen as Oliver shares the roots in Melbourne, Australia, and his deep love for design and creating MAP today. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Ali Cousins of MAP. Ali, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have a chat. Of course. Uh, so I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up and what would you say your childhood was like? Wow, that's a big, big question. Um, yeah, I grew up in Melbourne, so I've always lived in Melbourne, Australia. Um, pretty normal childhood, I would say. Like I grew up surfing. That was sort of really my passion as a sport. I played lots of sports, but mostly traditional sports, football, Australian rules, football, cricket. Um, but yeah, surfing was really the first one where I was, I would say, passionate about. Yeah. But because we lived in Melbourne, we had to sort of travel down the coast, um, you know, on the weekends. And it wasn't something I could do every day. Um, so I was never a brilliant surfer, but it was something that I, I probably did it up until I was, you know, in my late, 20, late 20s. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, other, other than that, pretty standard high school um I didn't really know what I wanted to do after high school. So, you know, I went to university, dropped out after six months. I started working as a furniture removalist of all things, which was, um, you know, eye-opening. And um, ultimately that led me back to thinking about what I could do with my future. Yeah. Um, and I chose a fashion design course which ha just happened to be down the coast. So I was sort of ticking off two, two boxes there. One, you know, getting back into something I thought I would like and also being able to sort of uh, be down the coast and surf and have that lifestyle. So definitely. Um, and, you know, that was, I, I honestly remember just picking up the book, um, you know, the, the course guide and just flicking through the course guide and trying to find something to do. You know, that was, that was, um, kind of an odd way to do it, but I stopped on fashion design um, and it sort of spoke to me uh, in some way and jumped in and, and really enjoyed it. And it wasn't a really high level fashion design course. It was really yeah. quite practical. It was what we call TAFE here. Um, but it was fantastic. It was really, um, you know, 40, 40 con contact hours a week plus, you know, plus homework. And it was, it was you know, quite full on. Um, and really the purpose of that course was to just get your start in the, in the industry. So yeah. I think after two years, I got offered a job at uh, Globe, which is a large um, skateboarding company in Melbourne here, which, you know, you're probably familiar with. Um, they have a, you know, they were really an amazing, are an amazing business because they had probably 30 brands under their umbrella. So they, in Melbourne, they were sort of a, a company where a lot of um, junior uh you know, people would cut their teeth, you know, so there were so many opportunities within that business, whether you were sort of in surf or skate or streetwear or more fashion focused um, brands, you know. So for me, when I sort of got that offer, I was like, well, look, this the course I did was really geared towards just getting me into the workforce. Yeah. And um, so I left and, and took the job and I spent 12 years at Globe, you know, wow. I learned everything I know from that business. Um, I, I left halfway through and went to another business in Sydney and then came back and um, continued with Globe for another seven years. But um, yeah, all, all up, that was really um, where I sort of learned everything I, I know about the industry yeah. and um, about making clothes and designing garments. And, and um, so it was a really great uh, pathway, you know, to, to where I am today. Yeah, so mentioning uh, 
where you're at today from that. Um, what were some of your major roles at that company, Globe, at the time? What, were you on the design side? What, what was your roles? Yeah, I mean, like, like I started in production, so I was that was I was the production assistant, getting paid, you know, minimum wage basically. Um, you know, a year later, I had a you know small pay rise and just sort of worked my way up. But mm-hmm. I always wanted to get into design. You know, that was where my passion was. But it took me a couple of years to be able to sort of prove that I could get into that. Yeah. Um, so I started designing um, for various brands, and then ultimately I um, landed the head design job at Stussy, which was a license from you know Stussy in the US. Yeah. Um, it was licensed down here by Globe for the Southern Hemisphere, um, and that was a brand I always admired. Um, you know, I think they've. It, it's it's a brand that has is still enduring, you know, after 30 years, you know, it's it's really incredible. So I, I was excited to do that. Um, I left Stussy to follow a girl up to Sydney that I was in love with, and uh, took a job at Mambo, which is another iconic Australian surf brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was a really great experience. Um, so I was up there up there for two and a half years, and then I came back to Globe because I really resonated with the. The founders, uh, the management team, you know, and they asked me to come back in a uh, more senior role as design director. So ultimately, I sort of worked my way up through to the, to the design director and oversaw um, all of their apparel uh, design for that brand. So. Wow. So uh, with that niche of surfing, uh, skateboarding, where does this interest in cycling come into play here? I know it's a different industry. Yeah, good definitely. question. Good question. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're sort of polar opposites, aren't they? Even when I uh, – so I was probably – Probably wasn't until I was about 30 and I started and I had kids um, and I was working, you know, full time, obviously working pretty hard and um, just couldn't make my way down the coast. You know, Melbourne is a bay. So to get to the surf, you've got to travel an hour and a half each way to find waves. Yeah. So it becomes, excuse me, it becomes a pretty big day. You know, it's it's three hours of driving plus a couple of hours in the water. So um, you know, I had a friend, Jared, who ultimately became my business partner, mm-hmm. um, who was, had been cycling for years and racing and, you know, running his own team. And, and I'd always sort of, you know, sort of watched from the sidelines as to what he was doing. And, uh, you know, ultimately over time he wore me down and, you know, got me on a bike and, you know, sort of once I sort of experienced it, you know, the rest was history, obviously. But um, yeah, so I think I think it sort of just transitioned. You know, I ended up replacing surfing with cycling ultimately, and it's wow. just something that you know it spoke to me. It's still in the outdoors. You're still experiencing, um, you know, nature and discovery. Um, you know, it's a sport that you can travel with really well. I love traveling with my bike and you know exploring new cities and things like that. So it's, it's a similar way to surfing. You know, it's like yeah. a, also a great sport to travel with. So for me, it just sort of spoke to me, and that's. Um, that's kind of how it came about, but it was it was back then, you know, in 2014, it wasn't cool really to be a cyclist. You know, it was still kind of yeah. you know had a lot of uh, negative connotations to it towards it. You know, whether it be middle-aged men in, in lycra or um, so even even rocking up to Globe, you know, wearing my cycling kit and um, you know that that was that was um, shocking for a lot of people in the skate industry. You know, so yeah. I think now it's there's. It's a lot of a lot of that's changed, you know. I think a lot of the sort of preconceptions around the sport have Definitely. been sort of broken down. All these barriers have been broken down. So, yeah, it was a very different landscape back then. You know, it was it's it's always been a cool sport in my eyes. Like it's it's an amazing sport, but it just you know maybe had a sort of a different perception, you know, Definitely. through different subcultures. Definitely. So uh, entering into this space, what kind of problems or uh, differences were you trying to solve with creating map and the existing market of cycling market uh, with your apparel? What kind of differences were you guys trying to solve here? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, because I, I came I came at the sport 
with pretty fresh eyes. You know, Jared, as I mentioned, he'd he'd been in in the sport for years and he was already used to, you know, the landscape. And as I said, he used to make his own team kit. So he would just produce his own apparel, you know, he'd get sponsors yeah. and he'd put together and curate the team. And it, just, it was comfortable just wearing team kit for training and for racing. And and that was what he did. But for me, I was like, I didn't race, you know, at that point, you know, I started racing later on. But at that point I was like, well, I don't want to wear team kit because I don't race, you know, it's a bit weird. And um, so I was looking at the landscape, you know, and, and really what was out there, I'd probably define as two categories. There was traditional sport, you yeah. know, which was the heritage Italian brands, Castelli, Sportful, Santini, you know, all legacy brands from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And they're, you know, incredible brands that um, in most cases they produce and manufacture their own apparel. So really, really great businesses. Um, but the it was very performance sport focused and that was probably not appealing to me coming from a sort of a design and fashion background you yeah know? and then there was rafa you know a, you know yep. rafa amazing um british company the the market leader now but at, at the time they were really the only brand sort of um coming at the sport from a lifestyle perspective you know and and prioritizing design um at, on, on the same level as their performance yep um, and that was, you know, I started to look at Rafa and, um, but again, it was like, maybe it's the geo, you know, where we're located down here in Melbourne or, or what, but it just, again, it didn't really kind of speak to me personally, you know, I think I have a lot of respect for the brand. Um, but I was kind of shocked at, at, at the landscape, you know, I was kind of shocked at the, the lack of options throughout the industry and yeah. coming from the surf industry, you know, we, I, I looked at the surf industry and sort of said, well, look, there's, there's four or five big brands that sit at the top of that industry, you know, there's Quicksilver, Billabong, Rip Curl, Hurley, you know? Yeah. But in my view in cycling, there was only one, there was just Rafa, you know? And for us, it was like, well, this is, this is kind of crazy. You know, I think there's an opportunity here. I, I feel like we have a voice and a, and a point of difference to, you know, to what is on the market. You know, I think we can come at it from a position of experience in working with brands and building with building brands and building product. You yeah. know? So I think um, from day one, we were pretty confident, you know, that we could, um, I guess, provide something new to the, to the, to the industry, you know, and that Definitely. was really what we wanted to do. Um, so it was, it was really, you know, I never had, look, to be honest, I never had ambitions of starting my own business. You know, I was always, happy working for someone, you know, I, I loved working for Globe. I loved, you know, I guess, um, you know, climbing the corporate ladder, what, you know, yeah. however, however, however you want to des- uh, describe it. But yeah, I, I sort of, I wasn't the type of person that sort of, you know, for early on said, I, I need to do something for myself. But definitely when I looked at the cycling space and um, thought about it, I, it was compelling, you know, yeah. it was something there where I was like, okay, I, we have to do this. This is exciting. You know, I think we can do something cool. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far around Oliver's entrepreneurial journey. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, Canuda. Created by a physical therapist, Canuda pillows are designed to form well with the natural curvature of the cervical spine, placing your neck and head in proper position. If you're like me, body posture is so important to stay efficient with your work. I highly recommend Canuda pillows and make sure to check them out for yourself at canudausa.com. That's canudausa.com and enjoy the rest of the episode. So to the listener's POV, uh, can you kind of paint a picture from these early days of what that prototyping process looked like? Uh, you guys have a wide range of products today. Uh, what were some of the first products that launched and what did that R&D process look like from 
your design view? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I guess, you know, Globe and the surf industry, surf skate industry is predominantly produced in China, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, would, I would say <clears throat> 95% of all our product was there and, and, you know, great factories, great products. I have a lot of respect for Chinese production. Um, but it's quite tailored to the products that you're, you're selling. So, you know, t-shirts, board shorts, you know, pants, hoodies, etc. So for us, we needed to source a completely new supply chain that was specialists in performance apparel, particularly cycling. And for us, the, the, the cream of the crop, um, in that sense was Italy. Yeah. Um, all of the best cycling fabrics, 95% of them come from Italy some great mills there there's a whole industry there you know dedicated to cycling which which is incredible so it was a real learning process for us <clears throat> luckily jared had been through you know years of making his own team kit in a custom sense so which means you know you order um 50 for your team or 40 or 30 mm. you know just just for certain groups and that's what yeah. really is the foundation of a lot of those cycling factories in italy it's to produce race wear for teams and clubs you know yep um, so we started approaching some of the factories that he'd worked with in the past. And, um, you know, that was probably a 12 month process of just back then it was phone calls. We weren't really even doing zoom, you know, it was just phone calls and emails and, you know, and the time zone between Europe and Australia is crazy. Like I was up at, you know, eight, nine, 10 PM on the phone most <laughs> nights, you know, talking about what products we wanted, trying to source fabrics. And, you know, it, it just takes a long time because we're, you know, obviously, um, a long way away in Australia, but it would be packages sent, comments made, mm. you know, pa- samples sent again. So we probably went through, let's say, almost a year of that, mm. just really trying to refine what it is that our collection would be. And look, our coll- first collection was only um, five jerseys, two bibs, five pairs of socks, you know, just okay. like three products, something you could wear from head to toe. Yeah. But it was, it was really narrow, you know, but we wanted to make sure that, you know, it was... Um, amazing you know from in terms of fit it was all built from the ground up you know it wasn't anything it wasn't sort of it was something we, we had clear vision for what we wanted to look like and we sort of um i guess we we're sort of bouncing back and forth until we got there right at the last minute we um decided to fly to italy this was for the last round so we sort of said look it's really close all we need to do now is just get on the plane and get over there yeah and um you know that, and that's at that point that's a big risk you know like i think um when i look back at what it took from a financial perspective to launch the brand. I think we put 15,000 Australian dollars, probably like, what's that? Um, 8,000 US or 10,000 US in each, yeah. right? Just to get, which is not a lot of money, right? Just Definitely. to start a brand and you know, you're talking about, um, uh, yeah, flying to Europe, put, you exactly. know, and using money out of that, out of that pot to sort of get over there to make sure our, our, our product and production is correct. Was this used for was, inventory was as well? This was inventory as well. Uh, yeah, that was the first wow. round of inventory too. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we ordered, I think we might have ordered 30 or 50 of each style to start with. It was nothing, you know, wow. like it was, it was um, but it was so important for us to, to get there, to see the factory, to make sure it was all perfect. And that was, uh, I think that paid off, you know, obviously in, in spades. And um, plus we took our bikes and went for a ride and I'm sure we had, we had a pretty good time in, yeah. in Italy, but it was, yeah, that, that was the catalyst. That was kind of like, okay, we, we know now we can push the button on production. We know it's going to be great. Um, we came back and we started trying to sell it. So, cause we were running out of money, uh, yeah. obviously. 
And um, so we basically, you know, created a lookbook and just went around and started to talk to some of the, the better bike shops um, in Melbourne, in Australia. And, and I think we sold out before, you know, before we'd launched. We had, we had you know, a fair bit of interest. So it was, mm-hmm. it was, it all sort of worked out. But yeah, the, um, it was, I would say, uh, yeah, probably 12 to 15 months of development before we launched. Wow. So I, I, I presume e-commerce is a big piece of your business now. I'm curious, in 2014 at launch, was it basically the bike shops locally in Melbourne? Was that 100% of your sales in the early days? Or what did that look like? <clears throat> so we started, we, we knew we wanted to launch a Shopify store, you know, um, from day one, you know, yeah. but we knew at the same time we would have no traffic, right? Yeah. Like, you know, no one knows us. We had an Instagram account, you know, there was a few people that were interested, whatever. But um, yeah, initially we, we knew we had to have both. Um, and look, to this day, it's still what probably roughly half and half, maybe okay. a little bit tipping more into e-com, you know, but yeah. we would never have expected that. We would have thought e-com would be, you know, 90% of our business. It's not, you know, it's, it's 60% or 55%, you know? Yeah. So um, the, the wholesale accounts and the wholesale network we built was, has been a huge catalyst for us building the brand and growing the brand and growing awareness, you know? Yeah. Um, and it really does work, you know, harmoniously. They, they do work harmoniously together, you know. I, don't, I personally don't think you can or should have one without the other, you know, in, or particularly in our industry because cycling is such a community-based sport, right? Like you, you work with a great bike shop, um, you know, you, you work with them as partners. They have a community themselves and then you've got access to that community. You can, you know, host them and ride with them and bring them into the brand, you know, they um they're super valuable for us and and that's um yeah it's not something i would have expected but it's still it will be an ongoing part of our business you know like a really important part of our business 100 percent uh what i think is really incredible is how respected and well known actually map is here just in the united states um and how much you guys have expanded internationally i'm curious to go back to some of those first days when you decided you want to get go that international route um did you take that route through e-commerce or did you go through the bike shop route as well shipping inventory to those shops how did that look yeah uh both um yeah I th- look i think i think being based in australia you have to think about that from the beginning you know you you, you it's really rare to have a, a large business contained within australia right so yeah. i think for, you know if you're based in the us there's you know there's, I, I know a lot of businesses that don't ship internationally from there and they're really successful large businesses you know but yeah Pretty early. I mean, we were making our product in Europe. At that point, it was 100% made in Italy because um, it was efficient for us and what have you. And we were shipping it out to Australia and then shipping it back to Europe, you know, for customers, which obviously doesn't make sense. So yeah. within six months, we opened up a 3PL in the Netherlands. Um, and that almost became our sort of central product hub. So the, 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 the goods would come, you know, from Italy to Netherlands. We'd ship some to Australia, but if we needed more, we could top it up from the Netherlands, you know. So it's yeah. sort of... we. We knew it sort of made sense in that sense, but it's a big financial risk because as soon as you're duplicating your your warehouses, you're duplicating your inventory, you know, and when you've got a lot of core products that you want in stock all the time, like our bib shorts and some socks and whatever, you know, you've got to carry those, those items in both warehouses. So, you know, I think it cost us, you know, I don't know, couple hundred thousand dollars just to open the warehouse, just to, just to put enough stock in there, you know, within six, six to 12 months of launching. Um, but it, you know, that was the right thing to do. And it, and it's, um, we could have signed a distributor, you know, we could have, uh, got someone to manage it for us, but you know, we, we felt confident in doing it ourselves, you know, like we, we sort of knew, 
you know, we knew we weren't going to be working with hundreds of stores in Europe, you know, yeah. or thousands. Of, you know, we, we just wanted to work with the right stores. And I think now, even today, we might only have a hundred stores across the across the globe. You know, yeah, which is which is not a lot. You know, when you look at um, some of the surf brands, they'd have four hundred stores just in Australia. So it's it's um, yeah, it's 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 still. Um, we're, we, we can still manage it. We still work with, in most markets direct. Um, and I think about a year after that, we opened up a warehouse in the US as well. So that yeah. was in, in Utah. Now we have one in the UK and, you know, we're sort of, it, it, we're just sort of um, expanding as, as we need to. But Definitely. look, I'd, ho- I'd hope we don't have any more than four warehouses. It, it does become uh, more complicated. So yeah. it's, 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 I'm not trying to sort of, uh, I, th- I think it's good to keep it as simple as possible um you know and, and as efficient as possible but sometimes you just have to, to make a call and jump in definitely so uh i'm curious then what does that marketing strategy look like when you're going international you're going to get some of the industry leaders that you mentioned prior um so what does that marketing strategy look like to bring in new consumers especially to a new market yeah look it's um look every dollar we spent on marketing we needed to make a return on you mm. know so we in the early days we you know we bootstrapped this business you know and um and it was it was hard because it was such a, a fast growing business so there's a lot of always a lot of pressure on working capital um and cash flow so you know if we're spending money on marketing we wanted to know that we were making you know 10 times that you know in in return so we really sort of funneled it through facebook and instagram you know i remember yeah. when we launched Instagram didn't have um, advertising on it. You know, it was it was just Facebook at that at that time. You know, which makes me sound really really fucking old. Excuse <laughs> me, really old. But um, uh, so yeah, it was it was Facebook initially, and you know, I was a bit cautious about that. You know, on the sort of attribution and is it really yeah having an effect? And you know, in hindsight, we probably should have spent a bit more time on SEO and sort of built that up from an earlier point of view, which is what we're sort of doing now. But mm-hmm. we were pretty. Um, that that's SEO is a bit more of a long game, yeah. you know, and it's sort of at that point when you're sort of, you know, cash strapped, it's harder to kind of put the resources in or hire an agency to do that. Or so it was really, it was really just social media, you know, and, and testing ads and, and, and also I think I've got to give a lot of credit to the community itself because yeah. map, I guess was something that was so different at that point, you know, like there wasn't much like it. And I think it's sort of a lot of people, um, you know, would share their images, would, mm. you know, user generated content was, was really strong and, yeah. and you know, our, our organic engagement and following, you know, grew pretty quickly. So I think that obviously for me, that was the most valuable, that was way more valuable than punching ads out through Facebook, but um, ultimately both, both channels worked for us and, you know, building our database email was, has always been a really great channel for us. So I think we just, we had a lot of support from the industry, from the community really, and that, that sort of helped us grow. And, um, we from day one. I think I think from the day we launched, we got an order from you know the US and an order from England, and wow. it's like, how does that happen? You know, we've just launched and you've you know we've done no marketing and yeah, yet um, you know, so that, that's incredible. That kind of really sort of blew us away. But I think that's also a byproduct of the sport itself being Definitely. such a global sport. You know, like cycling. You know, back then was everywhere, and now you can you, you know you know it's it's um, it's grown. It, you know, like wildfire. So. 100%. It's just interesting you mentioned that. Uh, just prior to this interview, I went to the Instagram of Map and looked at the tag photos, and it's super community driven, as you mentioned. Like in the past five hours, I think I found like 30 photos. So it's the UGC you guys have pumping through is truly incredible in the biking community itself. I'm curious uh, from the early days and to now, do you know what the main demographic for Map and what that might look like? 
Yeah, look, I mean, we started as a men's brand as well. Like as in, I guess that's, um, you know, I think it might have taken us 18 months before we launched our first women's specific fits. Um, now it's about 30% female, which is incredible. Um, and it's sort of been growing consistently, um, you know, at, at that, at that level. Um, so, and there's so much, so many more women coming into the sport now as yeah. well, which is amazing to see. Um, age demographic, you know, it probably sits between, um, you know, the early 30 kind of range, you know, if you sort of say like 25 to 35 is the, is the core sort of age or range demographic, particularly through social, I guess, if you look at it in that sense. Yeah. Um, and then the 35s to 45s. So I, I just sneak in within that range, luckily. So, um, but yeah, so I think, um, yeah, look, I think when I started cycling, it, it definitely felt like a bit of an older man's sport, you know, yeah. like, um, now when I look at the people that are coming into the sport, you know, they are 25 and they are cool kids and they are, you yeah. know, skateboarders or, you know, surfers that want to do both and they're proud of being a cyclist, you know? So Definitely. I think the, the demographic is, is starting to drop, you know, the, the age bracket, I think starting to drop and which I think is also something that's great for the sport. hundred you know? percent. I, I see that myself as well. Uh, a lot of the entrepreneurship ecosystem here in the U S are, they are a community of cyclists. Um, so I actually found out right. about MAP through a, a guy I actually had in my podcast, Cody Levine. He's the founder of Twice Toothpaste. And I was looking at his Instagram today. He had on his story, all of his friends were wearing MAP in California. And his father's a New York dentist and his father wears MAP. So it really is an ecosystem that's building in all different spectrums of ages, as you mentioned. I'm curious, um, what would you say from launch you mentioned earlier, but what would you say differentiates MAP to competitors today then? Some of the main differentiates. Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of a, a brand that was built on inclusive inclusivity. You know, I think um, we wanted to build products um, that people themselves could mix and match and put together and sort of express their own style. You know, we, we, I, I sort of wanted to kind of, I, know I never really wanted to be too prescriptive. You know, you have to wear this with that and that, you know, I just wanted to kind of create cool product that people could, you know, um, be proud to wear and express their style. And, you know, I think style for us um, has always been, you know, one of the key pillars and, and it's really that blending style with performance, mm. you know, like it's, I think there's a lot of brands out there that do performance really well, yeah. you know, and, and, but do you want to wear it, you know, and do you feel comfortable in it? Do you feel good in it? Or do you feel confident, you know, walking mm. into a cafe wearing it or rocking up to a bunch wearing that, you know, does it really reflect your style? off the bike as well and your sensibilities. So I think, you know, that that's sort of always been um, probably our uh, driving force. Yep. Um, and, you know, like we're not, we're just sort of making product that we want to wear and that, that we feel comfortable in and that, you know, that sort of inspires us. And, and I think that um, hopefully has been a point of difference from, from what else is out there on the market. You know, we try and sort of push the sport forward, I'd say, you know, we look to the future, you know, we sort of try and break down barriers mm -hmm. and, question why things that you know are the way they are within the sport which is you know quite traditional in in, in general so yeah. um yeah i'd like to think we're sort of you know evolving um cycling and, and or helping to evolve the sport in that definitely. sense you know so definitely well i'd like to conclude each episode with this uh if you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur maybe something you've learned or regret uh what would that be yeah, look, I think um, for me, I think really taking time to invest in the brand identity, you know, sort of figuring out 
your point of difference, figuring out your aesthetic, mm. um, your branding, you know, as, uh, out of that initial pool of invest, you know, money that we sort of invest into the business, you know, we spent quite a bit of that working with um, a creative agency called Mass Current, who, which was owned by um, a guy, Misha, who ultimately ended up coming to work for us and is now our chief creative officer. But <laughs> Um, you know, that was an expensive process, but we really um, invested in that from the beginning. You know, the, the foundations of the brand are what you live with forever, really. So it's like, uh, I would say, make sure that's um, built on a solid foundation. Mm -hmm. So make sure that's something that you love, um, that you're confident in, that you, you know, then want to, you know, run with because that's, um, that'll set you up for, for, you know, for the long term. Definitely. Well, Ali, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out MAP at map.cc. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I want to say thank you to our closing sponsor, Carez. Natural Greek skincare and beauty products inspired by homeopathic remedies and formulated using innovative technology. I had Lena Carez, the founder of Carez, on the podcast a while back, and her products are absolutely brilliant. They work wonders. Make sure to check them out at carez.com.